chapter 4. And if you are in the habit of using the sermon notes, yes, exactly, my thoughts precisely. They're quite challenging this morning, some might even say daunting, but uh, I think you're up for it. Of that, I am most certain. Take the sermon notes if you do use them, and may the Lord help you and guide you in your use of them. Uh, We're returning to Luke chapter 4. We're going to pick up in our studies of Christ's uh, great declaration in verses 18 and 19, but, uh, but before I do, I just want to return our mind's attention again to Tim Preston for a few moments. Uh, Jonathan mentioned uh, during the announcements, as many were already aware, that uh, our brother Tim uh, went to be with the Lord Friday evening, and um, as I was just, just reflecting on, on this uh, yesterday, uh, mindful of the fact that for, for many here, uh, Tim is somewhat unknown. Many never met Tim, don't know Tim. But for others here who go right back to the church's founding, uh, Tim holds a, a significant place in both mind and, and in heart. And so I think a few comments, it merits a few comments at, at the least. Um, first of all, I think as a church, we ought to just pause and give thanks. Uh, amen, exactly. And thank the Lord. Uh, a church's legacy and history are important. Uh, this church began October 31st, 1999. So we're not too far off from 20 years. And we can think of, uh, we can think of the Pope Joys, uh, the Phillips, that would be Mark and Kara, the Lees, the Frees, the Walls, I think. Teresa Weeman was here in that day, uh, Jan Williams. Soon afterwards, you have the Thomases, the Engstroms, the McKinleys, the Gaines, and others who, uh, who uh, joined the church here and involved themselves in the ministry of this local body. But front and center to all of that were, were the Pressons and, and Tim himself serving as the pastor. Um, giving thanks because of the foundation that was set. Uh, The foundation set almost 20 years ago uh, established the trajectory for this church. And so this church is today because of the foundation established almost 20 years ago. We, we, We dare not forget that from where we have come and the seed that was planted the values, the principles, the vision that was made part of the DNA of Grace Community Church. And I think it behooves us just to pause and give thanks for, for the life of Tim Presson and his involvement and the way in which the Lord used him in that extremely important phase of this church, namely its foundation, its foundation. I think it's also important for us to remember Tim's example. Uh, I, my mind went yesterday to Hebrews 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Two things come to mind uh, when I think of Tim. One is zeal for God's glory. The second is commitment to God's word. And both are uh, worthy of emulation on our part. 
a zeal for God's glory and commitment to God's word. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And the third comment I'd like to make is this. I think it is important for us as a church to celebrate Tim's victory. And I was thinking of Revelation chapter 3 verse 5 and thinking of Tim in the context of this statement. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. That's a tremendous statement and a, an encouraging word when we now consider our brother's present condition dwelling in the presence of the one who is of inestimable worth and value and glory. As Jonathan already mentioned, please pray for the Preston family, Lynn and the kids, upholding them uh, through our prayers that um, the Lord would indeed draw near and sustain them in the coming hour, days, weeks, months, months ahead. And so again, we give thanks to the Lord. We remember the example of a faithful servant who has gone on before us, and we celebrate our brothers victory, our brother's victory. If you have found Luke chapter 4, I invite you now to guide your mind's eye, your heart's attention to verse 16. Uh, Luke informs us in this verse that the Lord Jesus has returned to his hometown of Nazareth. He had, he has already embarked on his public ministry. He has rendezvoused, if you like, with John the Baptist at the Jordan River. He has entered into the waters of baptism and having emerged from those waters, the heavens have opened, the Spirit of God has descended in the likeness, in the form of a dove and rested upon him, and the Father himself has been heard to declare this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. It is the anointing of Jesus Christ. It marks the commencement of his public ministry. Everything that he does, everything that he says from that moment is by the power of the Holy Spirit. In that same power, he returns home to Nazareth. As is his custom, according to verse 16, he enters the synagogue, he stands up to read. He takes the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And this is extremely important. The entire, the whole of the Old Testament scriptures are before him. He takes the prophet Isaiah. He turns to Isaiah 61. And so as the Lord Jesus now, still at the start of his ministry, is about to make his great appeal to the Old Testament scriptures, of all the places he could go, he goes here. And in Isaiah 61, he sees, he finds that which in his own estimation describes who he is in clearest terms and in clearest fashion. And so we read verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What he says is important. What he doesn't say is equally important. He ends his quotation from Isaiah 61 in mid-sentence. Verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If we were to turn back to Isaiah 61, we would discover that the verse continues, yes, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. He does not include that second phrase. Why? He is making a point by omitting it. What is his point? Simply this. At his first coming, he did not come to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. That awaits what? His second coming. With his first advent into this world, he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He came to proclaim that this is the defining moment, that this is the day of grace. He actually goes on to say in verse 21, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. It has come. We have entered it. Yes, a day will come when I will return and it will usher in the day of vengeance of our God. But not today, not now. What has been established now is the year of the Lord's favor. And in verse 18, we have three analogies, three powerful descriptions of what it means for the Lord Jesus to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Firstly, it means to proclaim good news to the poor. Secondly, it means to proclaim liberty to the captives. And thirdly, it means to proclaim recovering of sight to the blind. And so he's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. Well, give me a little more detail. He has already given it to us, that threefold description. He has been anointed by the Spirit of the Lord. He has been sent. He has come because he has a message, a threefold message, good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind. We've already considered the first two. He came to proclaim good news to the poor. He came to proclaim liberty to the captives. Uh, you will recall, if you were here, that this poverty of which the Lord Jesus is speaking, this captivity which the Lord Jesus is referencing, uh, this is not a physical poverty, nor is this a physical captivity. Uh, the Lord Jesus, important for us to hear this, the Lord Jesus is not a social justice warrior. The Lord Jesus is a gospel preacher. And the poverty that he has in view and the captivity that is before him is not physical. 
It is spiritual. He has in mind a particular spiritual condition that marks, or better yet, plagues humanity. And he has come to proclaim a message to those who are spiritually poor. He has come to announce a message to those who are spiritually imprisoned. And when we sense our spiritual poverty, when we sense our spiritual imprisonment or captivity, we are keenly, we are acutely aware of our sinfulness before a holy God. Gregory, one of the early church fathers, he put it as follows. Good for us to hear from these voices from the past Way past, once in a while, he declared the following, Oh, my brothers, what was high? And he's speaking of himself. He's speaking of you and me. What was high at one time has been made low. What was created in the image of heaven has been reduced to earth. The one who was ordained to govern the earth has been reduced to a slave. What was created for immortality has been destroyed by death. We are not what we once were. We are not now what we were created to be. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. And we are marked by spiritual poverty and spiritual captivity The Lord Jesus preaches a message to us, and his message is simply this. There is freedom from the power, the tyranny, and the penalty of sin in him. He has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He has come to announce that God is gracious. He abounds in mercy for those who acknowledge their poverty and their captivity turning from themselves and approaching them through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, there is indeed the certainty of salvation. Oh, the year of the Lord's favor. It leaves us with the third analogy. We've got the first two. Good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, and now here is the third, recovering of sight to the blind. And so as we break that sentence down, there are two things we want to get our minds around. The first is this, Jesus' audience. To whom is he speaking now? Formerly the poor, the captive, now the blind. As in the first two instances, this is not a physical blindness. What is it? It is a spiritual blindness. What the Bible references or describes as? darkness. We are in darkness. We are spiritually blind as far as God is concerned. The scriptures testify to this from beginning to end. And yet if there is anything, if there is anything difficult for man to accept, it is this, this notion, this premise that as far as God is concerned, we can't see spiritually blind incapable of understanding spiritual truth, incapable of understanding who God is, really incapable of understanding who we are, 
incapable of understanding, grasping on our own the way of salvation, the glory of heaven, the seriousness of hell. This is a closed book to the natural man who sits there in a state, a condition of darkness. Oh, it is so difficult for modern man to accept. Why? Because modern man's worldview is based on the assumption that he is enlightened. That is the basic assumption today. You dialogue with men and women, old and young, and the basic assumption is that we are evolving, uh, we are progressing, we are advancing, we are enlightened. Compared to 10 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, certainly 200, 300, 4 years ago, look at how far we've come. We are an enlightened age and everything prior to 1992. It's the dark ages. And here we are. We've reached this pinnacle, if you like. And David Wells, he he, he describes, or rather he explains this, this prevailing conviction among, prevalent among modern man, that we are advanced, he says, basically it comes from the illusions of progress. The illusions of progress. By the illusions of progress, he means simply this. Uh, we are convinced that we are enlightened because we can talk to one another using our cell phones. We are convinced that we are enlightened Because we can access an incalculable amount of information on the internet. We are convinced that we are advancing, progressing, evolving. Because we can travel halfway around the world in a matter of a few hours. We are convinced of our enlightened estate. Because we can transplant hearts and kidneys. We can build bridges that traverse the water below and towers that reach the clouds above. We can send spacecraft into the far reaches of the galaxy to take pictures. We can harness the power of water and wind. We can harness the energy of an atom. And on and on and on it goes. Wonderful things. Tremendous accomplishments. Some more wonderful than others. Some more tremendous than others. But all of these great scientific, technological discoveries and advancements, they are illusions of progress. We look at these things and we are convinced ourselves that we are enlightened, but it is an illusion. And so you think of the last time you were canoeing, if you've ever been canoeing. The last time you were kayaking. And if you've never had that happy experience, you just try to imagine and take my word for it. There you are in your canoe, and you're out on that pristine, still, glass-like lake, pond, early morning, and the loons are out singing and calling one to another, and you plunge your paddle down into the water, and it's clear, and you look down, and as you look, what do you see as your paddle enters the water? that rather than going directly down, the paddle beneath the water actually projects at a 45-degree angle. What is that? Is it reality? What is it? It is an illusion. That is how modern man goes through life. He looks around him without understanding it is all an illusion. 
not a reflection of reality. And he convinces himself of his own reality based on what he sees, based on what he values. And from these illusions of progress, he concludes, look at how advanced we are. Behold how enlightened we are when in actual fact, Scripture testifies to the fact that ever since the fall, man has been groping around in darkness, spiritual blindness, blind to eternal realities, blind to the true meaning of life, blind to the majesty and glory of his creator, blind to these two destinies that lie just before him, heaven and hell, blind to the incarnation, blind to the beauty and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, blind to the significance of the gospel, blind to his own sin, blind to his own peril, blind to who he is, blind in utter darkness. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, says the Lord Jesus, because he has anointed me. He's anointed me to do what? To proclaim recovering of sight to the blind. The cause of our blindness, the Bible makes it clear, our sin. Let me just share with you a couple of passages of Scripture. No need to turn to them. And thinking of Romans 1.21, hear these words. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. It is a pervading darkness. Another one will suffice. Ephesians 4.17 They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And so this blindness is caused by our sin. It is compounded by Satan, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of of unbelievers. He isn't free to do that. He is able to do that and willingly does that because we are willingly complicit in it through our own sinfulness and hardness of heart. There is the cause of this blindness. And the effect of this blindness, well, all we need to do to see the effect is pick up the morning newspaper and read it. It is all around us. The effect of this blindness. Uh, we, can, we can turn to heinous crimes and we see it confirmed there, yes. Uh, we, we can see it in the growth spread uh, of immorality, the lack of morality in our society. Uh, we can see it in the confusion of values in our day and age. Uh, we can see it systemically. We can see it within society as a whole. More to the point, we can see it in our own lives. We see it most basically, we see it most clearly, most fundamentally in the fact that this blindness arising from our hardness of heart, arising from our sinfulness, causes us to value things and esteem things, which in the final analysis, in the grand scheme of things, 
are actually of very little value, if not no value at all. C.S. Lewis wrote a tremendous book on this called The Weight of Glory, I think is what it's called. And he wrestles with this problem that plagues mankind as a result of his spiritual blindness, that man is convinced that this is valuable when in actual fact it isn't. He has convinced himself that this is what will give joy and satisfaction and fulfillment when in actual fact it never does. And all the while, that which brings meaning, that which is of inestimable worth, that which is of incalculable value is hidden to the natural man because of his pervading blindness. And so Lewis writes the following, listen carefully, maybe it rings true for you. We are half-hearted creatures half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the seashore. We are far too easily pleased far too easily pleased because we are stark blind when it comes to eternal realities. Uh, Bunyan, I was looking at Bunyan this past week, lecturing a little bit on Bunyan, and this powerful illustration, again, brought to the forefront of my mind as I worked through Bunyan. I think I've shared it with you before. It's actually not from Pilgrim's Progress. It's from the sequel, for those of you who are familiar with it. And in the sequel, Bunyan tells the tale of Christiana, Christian's wife, who makes the journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And Christiana, along the way, she enters this home. It belongs to the interpreter, house of the interpreter. And in she goes and enters different rooms, and he explains the symbolic significance of all that she sees. And in one particular room, it really gets her attention, she sees two men. And uh, there's a man, turns out to be the Lord Jesus, up above, reaching down with a crown in his hands, offering it. And below the Lord Jesus, there's another man looking down, fixated on the ground. And on the ground, there's a bunch of pebbles and straw and branches and mud and muck and mire. And uh, this man has what was called back in the day a muckrake. And he is frantically raking the muck and the mire, trying to gather up his sticks and twigs and straw to light for himself a little fire that evening so that he can cook his supper. And there he is, just so fixated on what he is doing and his, his world defined by what he can see, his world defined by all that he can behold, his world, his value system, all that he holds dear, all that he appreciates defined by that moment of time, what he values. And all the while, he is completely, totally ignorant to the fact that the Lord Jesus stands, but they are hovering above, offering him a crown of glory. My friend, that's mankind. That could very well be you for all I know. There you are, seeking ambition, the next promotion, the next salary cap. Uh, there you are, seeking to define yourself by accumulating the toys, 
Oh, there you are defining yourself by notoriety, beauty, prosperity, I don't know, any number, one, number of things which this society holds dear and values and tells us incessantly are important, and you are so fixated on these things. This is life. This is the good life. This is what will bring me joy. This is what will bring me satisfaction. This is what will make me happy when I attain that, and after that, that. When people treat me like this, when I finally have the respect of so-and-so, when I finally meet so-and-so, when something finally happens, something finally comes together, and there you are so fixated on these things. And because of your blindness, you have identified these things as the source of ultimate happiness. You have ascribed to these things a value that God himself never gave them. And because of your blindness, all the while, completely unaware of reality. Reality as defined by the Almighty Himself. Completely ignorant of who God is, of the majesty of God, the beauty of God, the glory of God. Completely ignorant of His Son, the Lord Jesus, of what the incarnation was all about of the life he lived, the beauty of his holiness and his righteousness and his perfect life, completely ignorant of his substitutionary sacrifice, what it means to be bought with the blood of Christ, ignorant of what it means to be made one with the Lord Jesus through faith and becoming one with the Lord Jesus, now being an heir of God, an heir of God the beneficiary of untold privileges and gifts and blessings that await the saint in glory. But how many of us, there we are with a little muckrake in our hands, just working away frantically, so fixated. Why? Well, the text tells us, because we are blind. There we live in utter darkness, and that darkness has not merely skewed our perspective, not merely skewed or altered or hindered. It has completely obliterated our perspective. But here's the good news. The Lord Jesus has come, why? To proclaim recovering of sight to the blind. We know who his audience is. The second thing is what? His message, recovery of sight. What does that mean? Turn with me later in Luke. Luke leaves us in no doubt as he moves on in his gospel narrative, and he shares with us a tremendous story, a tremendous incident later in chapter 18, beginning in verse 35. Mark tells us this story as well. I believe Matthew does too. And we read in Luke chapter 18, verse 35, that as Jesus drew new to Jericho, he isn't very far off Jerusalem now, the cross is before him, he has increasingly made it central to his message, to his preaching, you know, I'm going up to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be tried, I'm going to be crucified, and after three days I will rise again, it, it is his mission, it is his goal. And on the way there, he draws near to Jericho. And what happens? A blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. So he hears the hustle and the bustle. 
He hears the multitude. He hears the excitement. He hears all the chatter. And it strikes him as odd. Something's different here. Something's up. And so he asks the passerby, what's going on? Verse 37, they told him Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. What's his immediate response? He cried out. He screamed, quite literally. Obviously, he had to make himself heard above all the ruckus of the multitude. Jesus, son of David, no doubt in his mind as to who Jesus is, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. This is a great statement, but he cried out all the more. If some, I dare say, if someone cried out like this this morning, we'd probably dial 911. It would be shocking. It would be absolutely scandalous. This man couldn't care less. Why couldn't he care less? He is aware of his blindness. He is aware of his problem. He is painfully aware of his need. He cries out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped. The creator of the universe is brought to a standstill by the screaming of this blind man. It's tremendous. And he commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. It's symbolic, isn't it, in many ways? The man's name was Bartimaeus, incidentally. And we're no different from blind Bartimaeus. It's not a physical blindness. It is a spiritual blindness. And like Bartimaeus, we recognize that it is the Lord Jesus alone who possesses both the authority and the ability to heal us of our blindness. Recover your sight, verse 42. Your faith has made you well. What does the Lord Jesus preach back in Luke 4, verse 18? Recovering of sight to the blind. Recover your sight. See. Behold what you never saw before. See the majesty of God, who he is, the glory of his power, of his wisdom, of his goodness. See, like you, you've never seen it before, the seriousness of your sin, not as you define it as an unfortunate incident that happened maybe a few years ago, but the seriousness of your sin as God himself sees it. Now see, like you never understood before, the splendor of this word, this book, The very words of God, that which is inspired of by the Holy Spirit. See the glory of the gospel. That God himself, the Son of God, would become man. Assume the office as mediator between God and us. That he would fulfill all righteousness on our behalf. That he would bear the just reward, the 
penalty due us for our sin upon Calvary's cross. Oh, see the wonder of God's grace. Lots of talk of grace and mercy in our days. But oh, to see like I've never seen before the grace of God, the mercy of God that is able to wash away my deepest stain, my deepest sin. Oh, to see the beauty of holiness, that which was formerly repugnant, that which was formerly of little value, of little, es- little estimation on my behalf for it, and now to see it as God sees it, to have all of these things all of a sudden become realities, whereby the toys and the trinkets and, dare I say, worse of this life, suddenly pale in comparison and just fly away, fall away as we stand amazed at the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, this is recovery of sight. We have have it expressed so well in one of our ancient hymns, one of our most beloved hymns, uh, Newton's. I'm thinking of John Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace. I mean, John Newton, he was a deplorable individual, a rogue by his own admission. And he wrote Amazing Grace as a celebration of his own conversion. He wrote that well-known hymn, Amazing Grace, as a celebration of how God brought him from pride to humility. How God brought him from rebellion to submission. How God brought him from despair to delight. More to the point, how God brought him from darkness to light, from blindness to sight. And we have that great line full of meaning. I was blind, but now I see. See what? He saw himself as he really was. He saw God as he truly is. And he saw the beauty of the Lord Jesus and the grace and mercy that was offered to him in and through Christ because of his finished work upon Calvary's cross. Oh, he came to preach, to proclaim, to announce, yes, good news to the poor. Yes, liberty to the captives. And yes, recovering of sight to the blind. And those three constitute his central message. Luke 4, verse 19. What does he proclaim? The year of the Lord's favor. Now, if you've been here the past few Sundays, you have heard me read on in Luke 4. And even if you haven't been here, you may be very aware of what follows. And if you aren't aware of what follows, let me inform you right now that the Lord Jesus, he finishes his little sermon there, having read these verses. He hands the scroll back to the attendant, and he declares that this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, right now, I am its fulfillment. I am the embodiment of all that has been promised. I am the one who has come. I've been anointed by the Spirit of the Lord, and this is the message that I'm proclaiming. What is the immediate response? Look at verse 22. All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Who wouldn't marvel? Think of the text he's read to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Those who heard him, 
They knew Isaiah 61. They knew the first two verses. They were well aware of the next phrase in Isaiah 61. And the day of vengeance of our God, the Lord Jesus leaves it out. No wonder they're speaking well of him. That's what we like to hear. We're speaking well of him and marveling at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. The Lord Jesus turns the tables. How does the Lord Jesus turn the tables? He makes it clear, yes, he has come to proclaim good news to the poor. He has come to proclaim liberty to the captives. He has come to proclaim recovering of sight to the blind. He makes it clear that his audience, those to whom he is addressing at this very moment, are the poor. They are the captives. They are the blind. When they realize what he is saying, what do they try to do? Throw him off the nearest cliff. Why? Because his audience do not see themselves in the three analogies. His audience, his hearers, those who stood there or sat there and, and heard him as he uttered these words, they did not identify themselves with the poor, did not identify themselves with the captives, did not identify themselves with the blind. And because they did not identify themselves spiritually according to those categories, what did they have no room for? The grace of God. Why? Because they did not see themselves as needing the grace of God. Because they were not spiritually poor. They were not, as far as they were concerned, spiritually captive. They were not spiritually blind. And so as the Lord Jesus presses them on this, their reaction is violent. As he cuts through their self-righteousness, as he cuts through and sees beyond, moves them beyond how they have defined themselves and perceived themselves and places them squarely in these categories and makes it clear, it is you to whom I am speaking. It is you to whom I am proclaiming this good news. And their response is violent. They will have none of it. Because these are words that do not resonate with them in the inner man. These are words and sentiments for which they have no place in their minds and in their hearts. Because they are unaware of their spiritual need for Christ. We can make the same mistake today. I dare say many, perhaps some in this room even, make precisely the same mistake today. It's illustrated for us. Kent Hughes shares this illustration. Let me share it with you. I pray it will make sense, and I pray the Spirit of God uses it for our instruction. Kent Hughes writes the following. A large, prestigious church had three mission churches under its care. On the first Sunday of the new year, all the members of the mission churches came to the big city church for a combined communion service. And so we can picture the scene, quite the crowd gathered. In those mission churches, which were located in the slums of the city, were some outstanding cases of conversion. But all of them knelt side by side for communion. On one such occasion, the pastor saw a former thief 
kneeling beside a judge of the Supreme Court of England, the very judge who had sent the thief to jail where he had served seven years. After his release, this thief had been converted and became a Christian worker, a Christian laborer. Yet as these two knelt there together, the judge and the former convict, neither one seemed to be aware of the other. After the service, the pastor was walking out with the judge and he said to him, did you notice who was kneeling beside you at communion this morning? The judge replied, yes, but I didn't think that you had noticed. The two walked on, the pastor and the judge, in silence for a few more moments. And then the pastor said, what a miracle of grace. What a miracle of grace. The judge nodded in agreement. Yes, what a marvelous miracle of grace. Then quickly added, but pastor, to whom do you refer? The pastor said, why to the conversion of that convict, of course. The judge said, I wasn't referring to him. I was thinking of myself. Surprised, the pastor replied, you were thinking of yourself. I don't understand. Yes, the judge replied. That convict had nothing but a history of crime behind him. And when he saw Jesus as his savior, he knew there was salvation and hope and joy for him. And he knew how much he needed that help. But look at me. I was taught from my childhood to live as a gentleman. Keep my word, say my prayers, go to church, receive communion and so on. I went through Oxford and completed my degrees. I was called to the bar and eventually became a judge. Pastor, it was God's grace that opened my eyes to see who I really was. And it was God's grace that opened my heart to receive him. Pastor, I tell you, I am the greater miracle of God's grace. The greater miracle of God's grace. Oh, if any of us would be saved, we must understand and we must be very clear on this. The Lord Jesus came to proclaim good news to a very specific audience, the poor. He came to preach liberty to a very defined audience, captives. And he came to announce recovering of sight to the blind to a very defined group of people, the blind. Is that you? Is that me? Poor in spirit imprisoned to my sin under its tyranny and its penalty and spiritually blind to the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus. Keenly, painfully, acutely aware of my spiritual condition and of my need for a Savior. But that's the one to whom the Lord Jesus has come to preach. That is the one to whom the Lord Jesus announces forgiveness of sins. That is the one to whom the Lord Jesus declares, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Our Heavenly Father, may you be glorified in your gospel this day. 
may you be glorified by your power and your wisdom and your goodness as they are so clearly displayed in the good news of salvation. We confess our slowness to see, to hear, to comprehend. And so pray that you would impress uh, your gospel upon us deeper within, with greater effect, greater impact. And for unbelievers in our midst, we pray that truly this day you might give them eyes to see that there is something of great worth, something of tremendous value in the Lord Jesus. There is something that exceeds anything that this world has to offer, something that far excels anything with which it can be compared in this world. We pray that you would give them eyes to see the beauty of the Lord Jesus. And that in seeing there might indeed be conviction for sin, conviction as to the truth, and a turning to you through Christ in faith and repentance. We seek it from you in his matchless and worthy name we pray. Amen.